The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Well, good evening to you all. It's a great pleasure uh, to be with you uh, over the course of these next couple of days. I want to begin by thinking about the woman who encountered Jesus at the well in John 4, if you can remember that episode. Uh, Not to think specifically about what Jesus said to her or she said to Jesus, but to think about what she said when she went back home after that encounter. Uh, We're told in John 4 that she returned to her Samaritan hometown, and her message to her fellow Samaritans was this, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, in one sense, she's not literally true. Jesus didn't run through her entire life, kind of month by month, explaining all that she had done. But in one sense, she's spot on because Jesus had put his finger on what had become the main thing in her life. She could say of Jesus, he, he totally got me. He totally got who I am. And it's a wonderful reminder that we really don't know ourselves until we know Christ, until we meet with him. I don't know what it's like over here, but back home there's a, a trend to take a kind of year off between high school and university to go and do some traveling. And uh, a lot of people will kind of come back from a, a year abroad doing that kind of thing, and they'll, they'll talk about having found themselves. I don't know if you've ever had people say that to you. Normally because they've been backpacking through a rainforest in Laos and not washing for four weeks. That apparently is a way of discovering who you really are. But actually we learn from this Samaritan woman that we only truly find ourselves when we find Jesus. Um, I've struggled with this issue of same-sex attraction for as long as I can remember. Uh, It took me a very long time to recognize that that was what was going on. I'm pretty slow at the best of times. I remember one day when I was about 14 or 15, my best friend at school had just started dating a girl, and he was filling us in on how he got together with this uh, particular friend. And uh, I was at an all-boys school, and so it was a a group of us guys in one of the the break times uh, being filled in on what my friend had been getting up to, and everyone was kind of congratulating him on getting together with this girl and high-fiving. And I just remember feeling absolutely crushed inside. I I smiled along with everybody else, but inside I felt devastated. Now, I don't think I'd consciously thought of my friend in in a sexual kind of way, but I clearly felt a very strong emotional connection. And the thought of him being intimate with somebody else left me feeling very vulnerable and very unhappy. And I began to realize over the the unfolding months and years that I was developing in a way that was different to my friends. I didn't seem to have the same strong physical desires uh, for women that they had. Uh, I remember on one occasion that I wasn't a Christian at this point and none of my friends were, but a friend of mine brought in a a pornographic magazine uh, to school to show a, a whole group of us. And again, I just remember thinking, I I cannot see why people are interested in this. I was not affected by it at all. 
Now, being at an all-boys school, the only two things we ever talked about were sport and girls. I can't throw a ball to save my life. So sport was off the table for me. And I couldn't really join in to the discussions about girls either. Um, Occasionally, friends would ask me, so who who do you like? Who are you after at the moment? And I'd either have to, to change the subject, or on one or two occasions, and I'm not really proud of this, I would make someone up. They'd say, who do you like? And I'd think, quick, think of the girl's name. Uh, Denise. Yeah, there's a girl called Denise I really like. And they would say, oh, who's she then? Where, where, where's she based? And I'd think, help. Um, yeah, you don't know her. You won't ever know her. She's, she's from... Yeah, she's from Norway, actually. So you, you, you won't have met her. You won't ever come across her. There was a kind of tragicomic period in my life. And at the time, I didn't really know what was going on or what any of this meant. This was a good 25 years ago. And issues of sexuality and same-sex attraction were not on the radar in the way that they are now. And it was only really as I approached uh, my final months in high school that I realized, and I remember thinking to myself for the very first time, I think I'm gay. I think that's what this is. I was just beginning to apply to study at universities, and I remember thinking to myself at the time, I could be gay at university. They have societies and and groups for things like this. I could run with it at university. No one at home would ever need to know. This was pre... This is dating me. Pre-Instagram, pre-internet, pre-social media-ing every waking moment of your life. And I remember thinking, I could be gay at university and no one at home would ever need to know. And just as I was beginning to wonder whether that might be a lifestyle I would explore, I very quickly came to faith. Uh, Some good friends of mine invited me to their church's youth ministry. They had invited me many times before. I had declined many times before. Um, because I was doing pretty badly in my studies. My parents had sensibly said, uh, you can only go out one evening a week during school term. And I wasn't going to waste one evening a week on church. But after my high school exams, I had nothing, literally nothing else to do. So I went along to this church youth ministry and heard for the very first time in my life that Christianity is not about God rewarding good people but about God being kind to bad people. And the Lord began to lay on my heart, actually quite quickly, that I was one of those bad people. I'd always been a pretty well-behaved teenager. I'd never gone off the rails. I didn't drink. Um, But I began to realize I was a sinner. I was proud. I was obnoxious. Even for an Englishman, I was obnoxious, even by our own pretty high standards. (laughs) And I realized that I needed this forgiveness of Christ. And just as I was about to head off into the big wide world, I gave my life to Jesus. And I'm so grateful to God for his timing that he brought me to himself before I really had the opportunity to explore Uh, the feelings and to live them out that I had been just discovering. And actually my life with Christ has taken me on a very different path than the one I likely would have taken. Our subject uh, tonight for this session is the Bible and sexual identity. 
And I thought this would be a good topic to, to look at because we live in a world that is confused and confusing on this whole issue. And hence we begin with those words from that Samaritan lady, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Uh, we're going to do, I'm a, I'm a Church of England minister back home, so my sermons always have three points. My biggest nightmare is a passage that naturally breaks into four because I then have to try and find a way of... I know the Spirit inspired it, but he meant to put three points in there, not four. But um, we're going to look at three headings tonight. We're going to look at the need for a biblical understanding of sexual identity. We're going to think about a couple of the components of a biblical understanding of, of sexual identity. And then we're going to look at the goodness of a biblical understanding of, of sexual identity. I hope that makes sense. Sorry not to have an outline in your packs. My brain doesn't work fast enough to get outlines done that far ahead of giving a talk. So what we're going to think about firstly is why we need the Bible's understanding of sexual identity. There are two tenets to the way our culture views sexual identity. Firstly, you are your sexuality. That is who you are. And secondly, your sexuality is your sexual desires. And therefore, in our own culture, a a key moment for anyone is when they discover their own sexuality. When they are able to discern what their sexual desires are, because that is the point at which they can determine their sexuality and, as the world would see it, finally embrace who they truly are. And increasingly, that's a a process that will happen in the younger teenage years. Someone feels attraction to someone of the same gender or someone of the opposite gender, whatever it might be, and that quickly determines where they land in the alphabet soup of LGBTIQ and so on identity. Our sexual feelings, we are told, don't just describe part of our experience. They define us. Your sexual desires are who you are. They are you at your most fundamental foundational level. They are you at your most you. They are the key reflection of your true personhood, the key to your personal identity. And so for the world around us, our our sexuality is a matter of human flourishing. We need to know our sexuality and embrace it in order to flourish. If you're going to express who you truly are, you need to act out and fulfill your sexual desires. It is intrinsic to being complete as a human being. So much so that to not live out your sexual feelings for any reason is unhealthy. Frankly, it's weird. And at its worst, it would be seen as highly, highly damaging You are suppressing something vital about who you are and you cannot have a a healthy 
expression of who you are unless you live out your sexuality. And as you all know, it's not just become a matter of, of flourishing, it has become a matter for many people today of justice. Uh, we've seen that in the legal changes that have happened both here and in the UK where I'm from as well. Our sexual orientation is not just a key identifier, it is now a civil right. Being able to express our sexuality is now a matter of justice. It's parallel to equality of race. And therefore to criticize someone's sexual identity is the unforgivable sin in our age. And you don't just have to criticize it, just to not affirm it. Because according to our, our culture's view of things, if you do not affirm someone's sexuality, you are effectively rejecting who they are at their deepest level. And it's why us non-affirming Christians are not just seen as, as quaint or outdated. We're not just seen as wrong. We are now seen as dangerous. Uh, the gay writer Dan Savage has uh, accused Christians of filling gay children with suicidal despair. We have, he says, blood on our hands. And friends, that is the context in which we increasingly find ourselves. And it's all predicated on this particular view of sexual identity. And the cultural pressure, and you don't need me to tell you this, particularly not in this uh, state of California, the cultural pressure is enormous. Is that right? So what do we do? How should we think? Well, there are two things we need to bear in mind about our culture's understanding of, of sexual identity. The first is, and I don't mean this unkindly, I mean it literally, it is nonsensical. If you apply the rationale behind this particular worldview, if you apply that rationale more widely, it is palpably ludicrous. This idea that who you feel yourself to be is who you most genuinely are. Let me give you a few examples. You may have come across these. Um, a, a man went onto the campus of the University of Washington uh, with a video camera. And he talked to students who were pro-transgender rights and bathrooms and all that kind of thing. And he got them to tell him, who was five foot white and male, that he really is a six foot Chinese woman, if that is who he feels himself to be. I don't think this reflects anything particular on the University of Washington. 
I imagine you get a similar response on many campuses across the land. If that's who you feel yourself to be, that must be who you are. Just uh, next door from us here in in, uh, good old Arizona is a transgender man who now self-identifies as a dragon. And so he has had some surgery to uh, shorten his nose. He's had a couple of horn things uh, put on his forehead. He's had his tongue forked. That is who he believes himself to be. And actually, he would say, as I read the interview again today, that actually we should be referring to it and not he. There's a man in Canada who self-identifies as a six-year-old girl and has actually been taken in by a family to be looked after by them as a six-year-old girl. Friends, I mention this because this is the exact rationale that our culture is operating under. And it begs all kinds of questions. If I self-identify when I get back to the UK as a member of the royal family, is it my civil right to live in a palace? (laughs) Can I claim that I suffer from financial dysphoria? I am in my inner sense of identity. Actually, I'm a rich man trapped in the body of an average man's financial means. And say for me to live out my true self, actually, I'd quite like all of you to give me lots of money. Now, friends, I'm not wanting to mock the people who are struggling with their sense of who they are. But I am wanting to mock the worldview that they are being offered. It is actually logically untenable. But worse than that, it is incredibly damaging. If you are your sexuality, then that raises the stakes very, very high indeed. Because it says that you being complete as a human being is contingent on fulfilling your sexuality. And that is a problem, my friends, for two kinds of people today. It is a problem for the kind of person who is getting the kind of sex that they want. And beginning to feel in their heart of hearts that actually this is not making their life feel complete. And it's a problem for those who are not getting the kind of sex they want and are therefore feeling as though they are missing out on the best that the world has to offer them. They're not fulfilling who they most truly are. A culture that says you are your sexuality ends up saying, whether it intends to or not, that a life without sexual fulfillment is not a life that's worth living. And friends, that implication has a literal death toll that comes with it. Uh, This worldview is damaging because we are not qualified to determine our identity. And so this whole issue of self-identity will always lead to hurt 
and pain. Because whatever identity we come up with for ourselves, however right it feels, it will never actually be a good fit for us. Because we simply don't know ourselves well enough. We can't, apart from divine revelation, hope to know ourselves well enough. And so whatever identity we discern for ourselves is going to be like ill-fitting clothes. Um, I've got a rather eccentric friend back home who, um, and bear with me on this, he has an interesting spoon. It's about the, si- about the size of a, of a regular teaspoon, but it's got a hole right in the middle of it. And uh, he came across this thing, not quite knowing what it was for, but had an idea for fun he could have with it. Um, he regularly has groups of international students uh, round to his home. He's involved in Christian ministry. And so he decided that as a, as a kind of, for a bit of fun, he would keep the spoon in his sugar bowl and just observe how different cultures reacted to this spoon that doesn't work because it has a hole in it. And depending on the cultural background, some of these international students would not say a thing. They would just try to work this thing somehow. Other cultures would immediately complain that the spoon doesn't work. Uh, You can probably guess which the Americans fit into uh, (laughs) on that. But eventually my friend found out what the spoon is for. It's an olive spoon. Pick up an olive, the stuff drains out. You now have a dry olive to put in your mouth. Uh, Why do I tell you that? You wonder, I'm sure. (laughs) Because you cannot make sense of the way that spoon is unless you know what that spoon is for. And it is exactly the same with us. We cannot make sense of of who and what we are unless we know what we are for. And so if we take our creator, God, out of the picture, all that is left is to think, well, I'm this weird whatever I am, And like my friend with his spoon, I think, well, let's just try and have some fun with whatever it is we are. We are not qualified to determine our own identity, not without our creator telling us who we are. And it's destructive, actually, because of what Jesus says. We are looking in precisely the wrong place to find the answers. Jesus if you remember, in Mark chapter 7, was having a disagreement with uh, a group of Pharisees. And he says these words, and this is Mark 7, verse 21. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, Jesus then says, come from within, and they defile a person. 
And so at the very least, that tells us if you look within, you are not going to find the answer to your biggest questions and problems in life. You're actually going to find the cause of your biggest problems in life. If we look within, we are not going to find the solution. And therefore, friends, in this age in which we live, we desperately need a biblical understanding of sexual identity. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's uh, think about that now. And I want to think about two particular aspects of our human identity as those who are made in the image of God. Normally in the UK, I'm being rained on during the day, so I have enough moisture in my throat to speak. But out here in the, the dry wilds of California, I need more lubrication. I want us to think about two things as we think about a biblical understanding of our identity. The first is what it means that we are physical beings, and then what it means that we are sexual beings. So firstly, what does it mean that we are physical beings? Um, Our culture is, uh, many people who know far more more about this than than me, which is actually most people when you come to think about it, um, have have said that our culture is increasingly Gnostic. Uh, Gnosticism was a a school of thought. It was a kind of sub-Christian sect in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. And it had a particular way of looking at the world that we are reverting back into. And this worldview, this Gnostic way of thinking, says the real me is the inner me I discover myself to be. If that is the case, then my body is just a physical appendage. It doesn't contain any kind of script or clue about who I am. And therefore, when I, as someone today, look at my body, what I see is something I need to shape into an expression of what my true inner identity is. My body is not the real me. The real me is the inner me. My body is just the blank canvas on which I have to paint my identity. Often, increasingly, literally paint I'm sure it's no accident that I think it's in the last 10 years, uh, getting tattoos has gone up by 500%. Uh, That is significant. Uh, This is not for or against tattoos. This is just observing something cultural is going on here. It reflects how we think of our bodies, that our body is not the real me. I have to paint the real me onto my body. My true essence is inner and spirit or whatever. The physical is just this random lump I'm lumbered with. And that is a very different worldview from the one we see in Genesis 1. Uh, Just turn to to Genesis chapter 1 if you've got a, a Bible to hand or you're all Californians and have devices, I'm sure, now with... Scriptures on them. Oh no, I'm seeing pages being turned. This is, this is wonderfully reassuring. 
And let me proclaim with great confidence, not knowing what versions of the Bible you have, that it is page one. (laughs) Genesis chapter one. There's more that could be, much, much more that could be said on this, but let me just tell you three things about your body according to Genesis 1. The first is that your body is purposed. God meant for you to have it. Now, we live in a fallen world, and that fallenness does affect our physical bodies. We all know that. Hands up who's taken any medication today. Yeah, there's quite a few of us. Our our bodies are fallen. But David can say, even of his fallen body, that it is fearfully and wonderfully made. You, physically you, are not random. The body you have is not accidental. It did not attach itself to you by chance. It is you. It's not just that you have a body as an accessory. You are a body. It is the physical you in this world. And our doctrine of creation reminds us that it is purposed. Notice, too, from our doctrine of creation that the physical world, including our bodies, are ordered. If you read through the account of of creation in Genesis 1, we're told that not just that God made stuff and filled the world with, with stuff, but he made stuff, and the phrase is repeated, according to their kinds. There's kinds of stuff in this world. There is enormous, staggering variety, and yet there is also order, and it's beautiful. Just one random example. Take the humble fern. Uh, There are 20,000 known species of fern. Wikipedia told me that this afternoon, so it must be true. And yet all of those 20,000 species, however different they are, are all recognizably ferns. There's an inherent fern quality to them. God has made things according to their kinds. And so the physical realm has groups and boundaries between things. And that is hugely significant. Because if your prevailing worldview is that this world randomly evolved with no reference to God, then you believe that anything can become anything else. And that is not the worldview of the Bible. And so, no, your physical body cannot become, sorry to crush some dreams here, you cannot become a dragon. (laughs) 
God has made us into types and kinds of things. This physical realm is not just an undifferentiated soup of stuff. There are boundaries and classifications. Notice, too, that our physical bodies, as those made in God's image, that we are gendered. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Physically, we have been made male and female. And as the Bible goes on to show us, that is significant. It is not just a matter of plumbing. Our maleness and femaleness carries with it ethical and behavioral implications. It carries something of a script of who we are and how God wants us to live. Uh, Tim Keller puts it beautifully. He says that each gender has a unique and non-interchangeable glory. Each is able to see things and do things in a way that the other cannot, which is why we need each other. Um, You may have come across Chaz... Bono, Bono, I don't know how to say the, their name. Uh, one of the, I think, the only child of Sonny and Cher. Uh, Chaz Bono has undergone um, a sex change and once said recently that gender is what's between your ears, not what's between your legs. Your gender is your, is your mind, not your body. But that is not the account we have in Genesis 1. He created them male and female. It is cast in bodily, not psychological terms. And friends, a very important implication flows from this. It means my sexual identity is not based on my feelings. My sexual identity is based on my body. And so my sexual identity is not that I'm same-sex attracted. My sexual identity is that God has made me male. Now our culture says it's exactly the other way around. My sexual orientation is given and fixed and immutable, whereas my biological sex is fluid and malleable. And so according to our world, to to seek to change your sexual orientation is deeply, deeply harmful. But to change your biological sex is a civil right. But actually my understanding of the Bible is that it's my biological sex and not my sexual feelings that are an eternal part of my identity. Just think about it for for a moment. Just let me walk you through this. I was born male. In no point in my life have I been or will I cease to be male. 
And significantly, very, very significantly, when I am raised from the dead, I will be raised from the dead as a male. I was not born experiencing same-sex attraction. Who knows, I may have been born with a, a disposition towards it, I don't know, but I wasn't born feeling it. There may well be times, and there have been times, when those feelings go into the background and come into the foreground. They're not consistent. But here's the key thing. When I am raised from the dead, I will not experience same-sex attraction. And so my sexual identity is male. That is what is going to be eternally true of me. My sexual feelings are temporal and therefore not the place to invest my ultimate sense of who I am. So where does that leave our sexual feelings? Well, let us think about what it means that we are our sexual beings. We thought about, a bit about what it means that we're physical. Let's think about what it means that we are sexual. And I want us to pan back, uh, pan out just for a moment. Uh, friends, the Bible begins with a marriage, and the Bible ends with a marriage. It starts with the marriage of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It ends with the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride in the book of Revelation. And that first marriage is the trailer for the second marriage. Now, in Genesis 1, again, in the account of creation, we see... I'm ripping this off Tom Wright, by the way. This is, this is not original to me. We see a number of pairings in the account of creation. We see heaven and earth, land and sea, the sun and moon. And at the climax of creation, we see male and female. And there is a connection between that first pair, heaven and earth, and that last pair, male and female. Because how the man and the woman are joined together is a picture of how one day heaven and earth will be joined together. And so the Bible ends with the heavenly city coming down to earth. And the symbol of that is human marriage. Because immediately before then you have the marriage of the Lamb and his bride. And that, does that make sense? And that connection runs through the entire Bible. Our human marriages are but a picture of the marrying together of heaven and earth that we have as Christ draws a bride to himself. And we see that reflected throughout the Bible. Psalm 45 describes a wonderful wedding, but it turns out the groom is God. The prophets repeatedly use marital language to describe God's relationship to his people. He is the groom wooing people. They are the undeserving and, and too often wayward bride. The Song of Songs uses the mutual sexual delight and intimacy of a married couple to reflect the delight that Jesus has in his people. 
And as we come into the New Testament, Paul reminds us that human marriage is, is a mystery, but he's talking about Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, just as a man joins himself to his wife and they become one flesh, so he who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so human marriage is designed to reflect the story of the Bible, that God is bringing a people together for his son, Jesus Christ. And friends, everything else flows from that. It is because of that that we have the the particular definition and shape of marriage that we do. It is because of that vision for marriage as as a picture of Christ and the church that we understand marriage must be between a man and a woman. And it must be between like and unlike. A man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot reflect Christ and the church. And friends, it means you cannot change your view of human marriage without ultimately changing your definition of the gospel. And therefore, we believe what we believe about homosexuality because we believe what we believe about marriage. But actually, this vision of marriage also gives us the right perspective on marriage and singleness and what it means to be sexual beings in the first place. The point of human marriage is not the marriage itself, but what it points to. Marriage is designed to point beyond itself to the ultimate marriage of Jesus and the church. The human marriage is just the temporal model of what is eternal. And friends, it has always been the the propensity of fallen human beings to mistake the model for the reality So let me just uh, remind you of that uh, great cultural artifact that is the movie Zoolander. This is the kind of cultural level at which I operate. Uh, have you seen the movie Zoolander? So the, the, the kind of premise behind the movie Zoolander is that the more good-looking someone is, the more stupid they are. I personally find that quite offensive. But... Um... <laughs> Anyway, there's a scene in the movie where the main character, Zoolander, is going to have a school built in his honour. And they, they show him the architect's model of this school. And he walks into the room, sees the model, and totally flips his lid and says, you know, this, this is far too small. He says, is this a school for ants? And it's because he's mistaken the model for the real thing. And friends, we do the same thing with marriage. The purpose of marriage is to point beyond itself. Our marriages are good gifts, but they are not ultimate. 
They are to point to what is ultimate. And if we have this perspective on marriage, it means we won't demean it or trivialize it, because it is precisely meant to be a representation of Christ and the church, but nor will we idolize it or worship it. Marriage is not meant to fulfill you, but to point you to the thing that is meant to fulfill you. And it's this biblical vision of marriage as the, as the picture of Christ and the church that shows us why it is we are sexual beings. Now, if that's the case, what does that mean for singleness? Well, let me say, it means that singleness, like marriage, is a unique way of testifying to the gospel. Do you remember Jesus said there would be no earthly marriage in heaven? We would be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Because in heaven, we will have the reality. We won't need the signpost. And so by foregoing marriage now, singleness is a way of both anticipating that reality and testifying to its goodness. It is a way of saying that reality is so real and so certain and so good that I can live in the light of it now. And so if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. It is a way of declaring to the world, obsessed as it is by sex and romantic companionship, that those things are not what is ultimate. And it's quite possible to do without them. And friends, that does not mean that for those of us who are single, our sexual feelings are just redundant. No, the consummation that those sexual feelings long for becomes a pointer to the greater consummation that we look forward to at the marriage supper of Christ and his church. And so singleness is not a waste of your sexuality. It is a wonderful way of fulfilling it. Because alongside marriage, it points to what is ultimate by foregoing the picture of it. Does that make sense? Good. We need to start wrapping up. So let's uh, finish by thinking thirdly about the goodness of this biblical understanding of sexual identity. It's so countercultural, it is perceived to be incredibly harmful. But let me give you just two ways in which it is good. Uh, the first is it should uniquely be compassionate. Now, the thinking of our culture may be hugely flawed. But when it comes to confusion about sexual orientation or gender identity, friends, the pain is very, very real. And it is incredibly deep. 
And we Christians of all people should most understand that because we are the ones who can account for it. We are the ones who know that we live in a fallen world. We know that the fall has affected every aspect of our lives. We know that our sin has spoiled not just our relationship with God, not just our relationship with one another, not just our relationship with our physical world, but also our relationship to ourself. We truly are lost. And therefore it makes complete sense to us as believers that someone might not have a straightforward relationship to their own body. We know that both our mind and our body have been affected by the fall. Our minds have been darkened. And our bodies have been subject to the same frustration as the rest of this physical world. And therefore, when it comes to confusion over sexual identity and all these things, Christians of all people should be the most understanding and the most compassionate. Our churches should be places of of refuge and safety. Because we are the ones, more than anybody else, who understand that feeling of dislocation and know where it's come from. A friend of mine in the UK uh, called Andrew Wilson recently gave a wonderful talk on transgender and intersex. And one of the points he made at the end of that talk was, for us as Christians, all of us live with a dissonance between what we are and what we feel ourselves to be. That what is true of us objectively is not perfectly felt subjectively. And which is why he says we need to keep hearing God say to us, this is who you are. And because of that dissonance, we of all people should get the pain that many of our friends and neighbours are going through at the moment. And then finally, this understanding of of human identity is good because it is liberating. You see, Jesus doesn't just restrict sexual activity. He doesn't just put boundaries around the context in which sexual activity is designed by God to work as a gift. Jesus also relativizes its importance. We learn from him that it is not the be-all and end-all of human fulfillment. We see that from how Jesus lived. He was himself celibate. So think about that. The most fully human and complete man who ever walked the earth did not have sex or marry. And therefore we cannot say that either of those things is intrinsic to human fulfillment. And I have to say, in today's culture, it is liberating to say to people, sexual fulfillment is not the key to happiness. Your sense of being fulfilled as a person is not contingent on satisfying your sexual desires. And let me tell you, students that I interact with back in the UK 
There may be a whole bunch of stuff they don't listen to, to, to me and, and what I'm saying, but when I start talking about that, they dial in because they know that they're being sold a dummy. Now, that doesn't mean I'm indifferent to my sexual feelings. It doesn't mean I pretend they're not there or that they don't matter, but it does mean I'm not bound to them. And that is, that is just good news. But more than that, Jesus, in his teaching, makes it very clear what is essential for human fulfillment, where true, ultimate, lasting satisfaction is to be found. Do you remember Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not go hungry. He who believes in me will be satisfied. I am the bread of life. Now, we have a bit of a problem with that because bread isn't a big deal for us. I was out for lunch recently and, uh, with a friend at a restaurant and the, the waiter came over and said, would you like any bread for the table? And we thought about it and thought, no, we're fine actually for the minute. We'll, we'll wait for the, for the main course to arrive. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we're in danger of thinking Jesus is saying, would, would Sir like a little bit of religion for the table? A little bit of spirituality around the edge. No, in Jesus' day, bread was the staple. Without bread, you died. No bread meant no life. And so when Jesus says he is the bread of life, what he is saying is that he is to your soul what bread is to an empty stomach. He alone can satisfy us at the very deepest level. No earthly friend or relationship can do that. Now, friends, just to be totally honest with you, there are times when I would love to be not someone who who's battling with same-sex attraction. Uh, There are times I would love to be a husband to a wife and a father to a child. But that is not the win. That is not the goal. That is not the prize. No, because better than those gifts is that I know Jesus better. And that I might even become a bit more like him. Let's just bow our heads and I'll pray for us as we close. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us, who reveals truth to us, We thank you that like that Samaritan woman, we can encounter the Lord Jesus and know who we truly are. Meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Father, we thank you we don't have to cook up our own identity. We receive it as a gift from you. And in this very confused culture in which we live, please give us clarity of thought Give us tenderness of heart and help us to be a blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Copyright 2016, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.